begin by stating a frightening possibility. It is possible to attend church on a regular basis without any significant change taking place in our lives. It is possible to be faithful in our daily devotions, reading our Bibles and praying, but essentially remain the same on the inside. Why? Because we are not earnestly asking the Spirit to convict us of sin, to open the truth to our hearts, perhaps sins of pride or unforgiveness or anger or selfishness or self-pity. I want to keep this thought in our minds as we look at the book of Zephaniah. The question, what impact is God's truth having on your life? I mean, really honestly, how are you being profoundly changed by God's truth? I begin this way because of a situation that faced the people of Israel in the time of the prophecy, the ministry of Zephaniah. Zephaniah was the great, great grandson of the godly King Hezekiah, king of Judah. So that means he had royal blood in his veins. Much more importantly, he had the message of God on his lips. According to Zephaniah 1 verse 1, he uh, ministered during the, during the reign of Josiah. Josiah. Josiah was king of Judah from 639 to 608 BC, and his reign came to an end 20 years before the Babylonians swept into Jerusalem and, and defeated the people of Judah and destroyed the city. The northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. Uh, almost 150 years prior to that. Josiah actually came to the throne, he was only eight years old. Obviously he had mature adults to help him reign for a number of years. But in the 18th year of his reign, which would be put Josiah in his mid-twenties, Hilkiah the priest found, the temple of the cop found in the temple a copy of the book of the law, which had been lost for years and years. And he read that law to the king, and Josiah was crushed. Josiah was broken. He ripped his clothes. He fell on his knees before the Lord. So in the next 13 years, Josiah led a reform in Judah based upon the rediscovered law of God. And we see that in 2 Kings 23. He restored temple worship. He sought to rid the land of idols. In fact, there were even idols of Baal set up within uh, the Jewish place of worship. Uh, he reinstituted the Passover. He got rid of the priests that were promoting the worship of pagan gods. Things were in a mess, a spiritual mess, when Josiah came to power. What he did was noble. It was necessary. But his reforms were more uh, formal and political than they were personal. And the majority of the people, it would seem, were not really, really transformed by the reforms that Josiah brought in. Externally, things were improving. Internally, the hearts of the majority were not responding to God. It was business as usual. 
So here we have people in, to whom Zephaniah now comes to prophesy who have a religious interest. They're back listening to the law of God. They're back in the temple. But there's no heartfelt repentance. Warren Wiersbe writes, the reforms were shallow. The people got rid of the idols of their homes, in their homes, but not the idols in their hearts. Idols of the heart. I have a book by that um, title. We all have them, and we all need to know what they are, and we all need to root them out of our lives. So that's the state of affairs when Zephaniah prophesied. Things were good in one sense, but God is warning his people through Zephaniah that judgment is coming because the change is superficial. We would say they're sitting in the pew, but nothing's going on in their hearts. So the outline of Zephaniah is basically the Lord's judgment, chapter 1 to 3, verse 8. His judgment on the whole earth, on Judah, on the surrounding nations, on Jerusalem, specifically in chapter 3, 1 to 7. And then his blessings, tremendous blessings promised in chapter 3, 9 through 20. I believe that the central theme of Zephaniah is in chapter 2 and verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So we have warnings through most of the book that judgment is imminent, and judgment did come upon Judah and Jerusalem, and promises, promises to the humble to take refuge in God. And the warnings and the promises serve as an incentive to the people to do something. So in chapter 1, we have the, the overall thought is pride in the coming day of judgment. Chapter 1, verse 2, I will completely remove all the things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, judgment upon the whole world didn't happen in the time that Zephaniah prophesied. It hasn't happened yet. But according to the book of Revelation, it is going to happen. But here again we have this, uh, this expression down in verse 7 uh, of the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. And then we are told over in chapter 14 and 15 what will entail that day of the Lord. And Pastor Dan read it to you. The great day of the Lord near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord in it. The warrior cries out bitterly, the day of wrath in that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Almost identical words used by Joel back in Joel chapter 2 and verse 2. Zephaniah uses other expressions that refer to the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's sacrifice. And the sacrifice is the sacrifice of the people, the wicked people in judgment. That day, that time, the day of the Lord's wrath, the day of the Lord's anger. So the day of the Lord, according to the prophets, and all the prophets basically have this in mind, it is historical in that it refers to God's impending judgment on Israel and Judah, and it's prophetical because it looks to the end of time and the judgment upon the whole world 
And that's, we find Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Zephaniah had in mind the Babylonian invasion in 606 B.C. and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C. And the prophet exposes the sins that kindled the wrath of God. And he zeroes in on Judah at this point in verse 4. For he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. The first sin is idolatry. Against all inhabitants of Jerusalem, I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. The wicked Manasseh, who was the uh, grandfather of, of Josiah, had built altars and high places and instituted the worship of the Canaanite male fertility god, which was Baal, and the female fertility goddess, which was um, Asheroth, and worship was gross. It was immoral, sexually immoral. And the people of Judah were caught up in that. He also speaks of astrology. Verse 5, those who bow down on the housetops, that's where people often had their place, little shrines up on their housetop because that placed them closer to the heavens. Those who bow down on the housetops to the hosts of heaven, to the host of heaven. And astrology is condemned universally in Scripture. If you are into reading your horoscope or your sign, don't do it. It is not biblical. It is pagan. The alignment of the planets at your time of birth and so on, that is not of God. And bad things will happen in your life if that's how you're seeking to make decisions. That is forbidden all over the Old Testament. And also, in Judah, there was a syncretism. Now, that is a combination of various forms of worship trying to come up with your own individual form of worship. Because notice what he says in verse 5. And those who bow down and swear to the Lord, oh, that sounds good, and yet swear to Milcom or Molech, which was a god of the Ammonites, and one of the practices in the worship of Molech was the sacrifice of children, burning children, putting children in fire and offering them to appease the gods and temple prostitutes. So here were the people saying, oh, we swear to the Lord, but we swear to Molech, trying to combine pagan and godly worship. The Bible teaches that there is one true God, there is none other. In our present age of religious pluralism, the common belief is that you can have a smorgasbord, have a buffet of religious ideas and, you know, fill your plate with whatever appeals to you. And that's your spirituality. God rejects religious inclusivism. That is the inclusion of other religious concepts into the, his revelation in the scriptures. Trying to get the best from all the religious traditions. Now, some people say, after all, who can say Christianity is the one true faith? And my response is, Jesus. <laughs> That's what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Mark Dever writes, the true God has no co-regents. Worshiping the true God and some other God is not worshiping the true God at all. 
If we believe the Bible, we must be adamant about proclaiming that there is one God and there's one pathway of salvation. God tolerates no rivals. And I pray that the Wetaskiwin Mission Church, as it has for over 80 years, will, will be crystal clear on this hard truth. And it's a hard truth in our day that wants to be accepting about all kinds of religious concepts and ideas. No, there is one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is one pathway to salvation, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is not satisfied with part of our devotion. The great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Are there idols in our life? Now, we don't have shrines back in those days, of course. Rooftops were all flat, so they could have stairways going up, and they worship outside, worship the stars of heaven, and had their little shrines out there. But there can be idols of the heart. What do we treasure the most? What do we think about the most? What gives us the great amount of joy? What is the passion of our life? What occupies our time and energy? What are we devoted to? Whatever it is, that's the idol of our heart. And those questions we need to ponder. Now, continuing on in this thought of idolatry, turn over to chapter 3 and verse 2. The reason Judah and Jerusalem were in such low spiritual state and under divine judgment is given in chapter 3, verse 2. Referring to Jerusalem now, she heeded no, no voice, she accepted no instruction, she did not trust the Lord, she did not draw near to the Lord. That's the people of God that that's describing. Listen again. She heeded no voice, she accepted no instruction, she did not trust in the Lord, she did not draw near to God. The essence of her sin was proud self-sufficiency. Not listening to God. I can handle life. I can do it my way. And our culture is filled with people who think on these terms. They do not look to an authority outside of their own opinions, their own desires, their likes and their dislikes. This mindset of, of autonomy, of self-determination, is pervasive in our society. It is a manifestation of human pride. It is at the heart of rebellion against God. I will establish my own belief system. I will, will do my own thing. I will pursue my own goals. I will satisfy my own pleasures. And no authority will tell me otherwise. God gives us freedom to do that. But not with impunity. There are always consequences and they are painful. Piper says, man searches out a God in his own image who will give him all the leeway he craves and exert on him no moral constraints of which he does not approve. Doesn't that define the kind of God even so-called Christians in our culture, many Christians worship? Exert on him, this God will exert on him no moral constraints on which he does not approve. There may be no more arrogant man in the face of the earth, Piper says, than the man bowing humbly before the God he has created in his own image. Idols of the heart. And see the warning back in chapter 1 and verse 7. Be silent before the Lord. 
in the light of the coming judgment, there is no defense. Only shock, mute wonder that God in his wrath is going to act. Romans 3.19 talks about all mankind, all the world, closing their mouths and becoming silent before God. Speaks of submission and a disposition of awe and reverence and hushed quiet. Rather than debate with God and try to talk God into being a different kind of God or allowing us to fudge on his rules, no, let's keep our mouth shut. <laughs> let's just listen to what he says. And he speaks so clearly in his word. Several of us have taken up the challenge to read through the entire Bible in 2010. By the way, you'll see at the top of your notes I have that I'm living in the past. Notice the date I have up, up there. I have 1010. Well, sometimes I do live in the past, but hopefully not that far in the past. So, and I am, I'm so thrilled that we've made several copies of this uh, Bible reading plan, and we've had to make more copies, and I trust that uh, many of you, I know many of you have taken them, and it's going to take at least probably 20 minutes a day just reading, let alone the reflection. So my prayer is that you will not rush through this, that you'll do what I do all through my, whatever Bible I have, I underline, I underline, I underline, so that when I look at a page, a certain verse uh, pops out at me. So... Ponder and reflect and pray as you read the Bible. Bring your lives under, that, under the scrutiny of God's word and God's spirit. So the first reason for the judgment was, was idolatry. The second reason was greed. Greed. Nothing new about that, is there? In chapter 1, verse 11... Wail, O inhabitants of the Mortar. Mortar was a section of Jerusalem, a certain part of that city. For all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. Here are people spending their time counting their money. That was the big deal. That was the big thing in their life. Now we can turn down to verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of God's wrath. Again, I say, whatever preoccupies our thinking... That's our God, and for many people in our culture, it is material things. Dever says, can you see that silver and gold are neither sufficient answers for sin, nor sufficient motivations for living? Salvation cannot be bought. Salvation is free. It is a free gift of God's grace. If one of you here were so inclined to pay off the mortgage of this church, come and talk to me. No, I'm... It would not save your soul. It would not get you into heaven. We can't buy salvation. We go to the cross of Christ and receive as a free gift, pardon, and everlasting life. But, they, but they, were, they were thinking that they're going to escape the day of God's wrath through their money. They'll just offer money. Furthermore, the pursuit of wealth is a waste of time. For in the end, it brings no satisfaction. It never has. It was not meant to be. In fact, some of us have discovered over the years that uh, too much emphasis upon money and things and debt brings only stress and grief and anxiety. And that's not good. So, another problem that they faced, and our culture certainly faces it, is greed. And then indifference toward God. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. 
It will come about at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Now the literal reading here is a bit strange. I will punish the men who are thickening upon their leaves. What in the world is that? <laughs> or their dredge. The reference is to the sentiment in a wine flask that would develop at the bottom of the wine flask, the hard uh, settled wine and make the wine not fit to drink. So that was a metaphor for the callousness and the hardness of that, that, that abundance often brings into people's lives. The English Standard Version uh, does not so much translate this as, as interpret it. I will punish the men who are complacent, and the New American Standard does the same, who are stagnant in spirit. People who are complacent, people who are stagnant in spirit, indifference toward God, no humble response to God. And how do such people think? Well, this is how they think. The Lord will do no good or evil. God, I don't worry about him. I don't even think about him. He won't do anything. God is irrelevant to my life. I'm not afraid of God. He does no good. He does no evil. I don't need him. That was the way they were thinking, and that's the way a lot of people in our culture think. He isn't going to judge me. God loves me. He accepts me the way I am. So God had ceased to become a practical reality in their lives. He had no place in their daily affairs. His truth had no impact upon them. And this is why I began the message the way I did. It is frighteningly possible to be in church every Sunday, to have our devotions and not be changed, be indifferent to what we're reading. We shouldn't be that way. So when, when you read scripture, whether you're reading through this Bible reading program or some other way or your devotionals, ask yourself, what is in my life that needs to be confronted and changed and conformed to the purposes of God as revealed in his word? What is there about the way I think and the decisions I make and my pursuits in life that are not in agreement with what the Bible is saying here? Always, always put yourself under the authority of the Bible as you read it and ask the Holy Spirit to convict. And boy, I've been doing this for years and it is uncomfortable to read the Bible in that way, but releasing because you start to see some stuff in your life that shouldn't be there and you start to deal with that before God. Finally, there's a call to, to humility and repentance. Verses, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Notice how Judah is addressed <coughs> in verse 2. Gather yourselves together, yes, a nation without shame. A nation without shame, a nation who has no conviction of sin, a nation without any feeling of guilt or wrongdoing. We live in a culture like that. We have people get on television and disclose the most perverted aspects of their life, 
and not be ashamed of what they're saying or how they're living. But the condition set forth for us to be spared, to be delivered from that mindset, and to be spared from the wrath of God is found in verses 2 and 3. Well, verse 3 especially. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Three things. Be humble, seek the Lord, and practice righteousness. Reminds me very much of 2, Corinthians, 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, there's a humility, and pray and seek my face, there's the seeking, and turn from their wicked ways, there's the pursuit of righteousness, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin, will heal their land. The blessings of God, as we saw last Sunday, are conditional. And he sets the terms of those blessings. We must be humble, we must seek him, we must practice righteousness. The motivation for obedience is found now in chapter 2, 4 through 15. Notice how we we have the exhortation to seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility, verse 3. For, now here's the reason, for Gaza will be abandoned and so on. So what is mentioned now in the next number of verses Four different pagan nations uh, surrounding a Jerusalem, and God is reminding the people through Zephaniah, these nations are under my wrath because of how they've lived. So consider what is happening to those nations. To the west were the Philistines, to the east was Moab and Ammon under God's wrath, to the south were the Ethiopians, and to the north, the Assyrians. And maybe God is saying, whatever direction you you flee, there's wrath. God is dealing with sin. God is judging. You can't get away from God. You can't can't hide from him. But there's still hope, because a faithful remnant will survive the day of the Lord. Notice verse 3. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Perhaps is not speaking of uncertainty. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. At least not uncertainty from God's point of view. It's not that God's saving work is uncertain. It's not that God will not deliver and rescue and save if you call upon him. He will. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God will do that. The perhaps is... Perhaps you will turn to him and perhaps you won't. If you do, you'll be saved from his wrath. If you don't, you won't be saved from his wrath. So so Zephaniah has no uncertainty in what God will do, just in what the people will do. But there will be a remnant. That word is found in verse 7 and verse 9. God always has a remnant. In the worst of times, there's always a minority of people who are faithful to the Lord. And I trust that in our culture, Everyone here can be, can be categorized as that remnant. A third way that motivates us to obey the commands of God is found in verses 8 and 10 and so on. Because history shows that God judges the proud. And what we find in these verses is a reference to those such as uh, Moab and Ammon, 
and then Assyria later on, who taunted Israel, who abused Israel. Those people and nations down through history who have scorned and tortured and killed Jews will experience the ferocious wrath of God upon them. They will have to answer to God. Notice what he says about Moab in verse 8, which, which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord, the God of Israel, surely Moab will come, become like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits. In other words, just as Gomorrah and Sodom were, were made toast, were burned, were destroyed, so Moab will be because they mistreated the Jews. Verse 10, this they will have in return for their pride because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord of hosts. If you look in the world today at the Middle East, incy-bincy little Israel surrounded by millions of hostile nations and I realize that for the most part, Israel is back in their land in unbelief. There are tremendous works of evangelism going on there among the Jews and worldwide. Why is Israel, this dinky little nation, this minute little piece of real estate, why is it in the news every, every day? That's God's chosen people and his land. And God cares what happens to his chosen people. God hates pride and will bring proud people down. Celebrities, politicians, spiritual leaders, tycoons in business, and ordinary people. Pride is the undoing of these people, as Bernie Madoff found out and a host of other people. But if we are proud and defiant, it will be our undoing as well. Do an assignment over the next how many days or weeks you want to do it, take a concordance or Google in your, your computer and look up the words with reference to the Bible. Pride, proud, arrogant, humble, humility, lowly. Oh, you, you'll get a lot of teaching, a lot of information. And I hope you will conclude, boy, I better be humble and not proud because this is what God does to the proud he destroys the proud. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But then we close with the glorious future. It's been pretty heavy bad news up, and, up until now. But as in most of the, the prophets, there is always the promise of deliverance, always the promise of hope. Zephaniah closes verses 8 to 20 with a message of great hope and great promise. In chapter 3 and verse 8, and I think this refers to the battle of Armageddon mentioned in Revelation 19, 11 to 21. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I will rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out my indignation, all my burning anger for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. At the battle of Armageddon, that's what will be taking place. 
The primary interpretation as far as Zephaniah is concerned for Judah, because this has a particular application to the imminent invasion of the Babylonians and the destruction of Jerusalem, is found in verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. There's a promise then to Judah. God will restore you. God will bring you back to the land. God will rescue you. God will change your hearts. In fact, give you a new heart. But you have to seek the Lord. You have to seek righteousness. You have to seek humility. Saints of the Old Testament demonstrated that humility by seeking refuge in God. The Father, we in the Christian era find this rescue by seeking refuge in the toning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I will leave among you a humble, lowly people, verse 12, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. So this is speaking again of a time of the restoration, spiritual restoration of Israel. And tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. For they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Because Israel is in a trembling state. They have one of the best militaries in the whole world. They have to. It's mandatory. They have to defend themselves. If Israel slacked off on their military power, they would be overrun in a day. And the United States, thankfully, is behind them in this endeavor. But then verse 14, here is what will happen when the people of Israel, in fact, and by application and expansion, all of us who seek refuge in God, shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And that is God's plan for the remnant, for them to do that. How can they do that? What will be taking place which will enable them to have this joy and this safety? Well, verse 15 tells us, one, the Lord has taken away his judgments against you. They have trusted in the Lord, therefore they are not under condemnation, they're not under his wrath. Two, every enemy and opponent and hindrance to joy is cast out. He has cleared away your enemies. And three, the king of Israel, who is Jesus Christ, the Lord is in your midst. Obviously speaking, of a future time. And then a spectacular verse. I find this verse amazing in verse 17. In verse 14, we have the people of God, uh, Judah and Israel, but also those of us who trust in Jesus, filled with joy and rejoicing. But then verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his, in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. The Bible speaks often of our finding our joy in God, our delight in God. But here the tables are turned. God is finding his joy in us. God is rejoicing over the redeemed, over you and me. Isaiah 62, 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your, your God rejoice over you. Piper puts it this way, when we trust him, God welcomes us with bells on. He puts a ring on our finger, kills a fatted calf, throws a party, and shouts a shout that shakes the end of creation. 
And I ask, do I make God happy? That's why I ask the kids, what, what does it take to make your parents happy? They weren't with me today. Last week they were. Tonight, this morning, they weren't. Maybe it works that way with older people. I don't know. But I, I asked myself, Wayne, are you intent on making God joyful? Do you, do you want to bring joy to the heart of God by your life? I really do. Often I don't. Ponder that. That God can look at us and rejoice. Make it your purpose this week. Make it your conscious goal to bring joy to God. We're so wrapped up in our culture. I want to be happy. Set, set that aside. If you make God happy, you will be happy. <laughs> if you obey God, you will have incredible joy. Well, what will it take for God to be happy with me, for God to rejoice? And notice what it says here. We'll rejoice over you with shouts of joy. What would cause God to do that? It's right here in the text. Seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. That's what does it. So keep that thought in your mind this week. Look at your life. As you read scripture, bring your life under the scrutiny of the word of God. And rather than approaching the day saying, I hope somebody makes me happy today, make God happy today. Ask for his spirit and his truth to so transform you that you can look at the Lord and see him rejoicing. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we all did that? Wouldn't our lives be such a witness if we all did that? Let's pray. Lord, help us to turn from our wicked ways, whatever they are, whatever idols of the heart are there, and they are there. Show them to us. Search us out. Reveal any sin of desire or thought or speech or attitude. Any pursuit of life that is not to your honor and glory. And then lead us to the cross where we will be pardoned for all of our sins. And then, Lord, we are so dependent upon circumstances to make us happy. We're so unfair and demanding of people. They better act in a certain way or we're going to be mad. Lord, that's, that's childish stuff. Help us, God, to grow out of that. And rather, to humble ourselves before you and say, God, help me today to live in such a way that you will exult over me. You'll be filled with joy because by your grace, not by my efforts, by your grace, I'm doing what honors you. Give us that desire, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.